and welcome to the Pedagodzilla podcast, where we pull apart pieces of pedagogic theory, research and observation, and then understand them through the lens of geeky pop culture. Books, comics, video games, TV. This episode, we answer the question, how do you fight off dementors using the constructive alignment model? I'm Mike. I'm a man with a microphone. I'm Mark. I'm a man with a PhD. You might think the PhD trumps the microphone. But, you Not know, necessarily. you know, it wouldn't be able to record out the microphone. <laughs> just saying. Just... Well, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mike planning to do these things, really. So I'm just tagging along. And I wouldn't say anything correct if it wasn't for your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I edit out all the bits where Mark corrects me for my, um, my faux pas. So anyway, this episode, we're going to be taking a look at uh, constructive alignment, uh, which we'll be understanding through the lens of Harry Potter. More specifically, uh, Professor Remus Lupin's, so I guess, uh, Defense Against Dark Arts curriculum for Harry's third year at Hogwarts. Okay, that's the Prisoner of Azkaban, if I remember correctly. Uh, you do remember correctly. Okay. Arguably, the second best book. Okay. Best being Goblet Fire, of course. Okay, right. Uh, I, have you read Harry Potter? I was going to see how long I could bluff this out for, but no, I haven't. I actually know very, very little about Harry Potter. I've watched the first six movies back to back, and that's as far as I got. Oh, my goodness. I know, I know, and I thought I was going to style it out and you wouldn't catch on, <laughs> but you caught me straight away. My nerd credentials are actually not as bona fide as I would like. They're not as, bon- they're not as official as your actual credentials. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go into that either. <laughs> <laughs> On which case, for both Mark's benefit and for the listeners, for those not familiar um, with Harry Potter, get out from under the rock you've been living under. But more specifically, Dementors are these horrible, nasty, uh, floaty, blacky, raggy demon things that go around hoovering up happiness. Um, They're a specific problem for Harry because he's got a lot of not happy things that have happened to him on account of being uh, the boy who had a traumatic childhood. Anyway, and through the course of the book, um, he he goes from a situation where he can't he can't fight them off to to he can. Yeah, absolutely, constructive alignment. By the end of the module or the end of the learning course, the student should be able to. And there you go. There's a yeah. cell set of skills, learning outcomes, which mm-hmm. we'll be covering as part of constructive alignment. Absolutely. Part one, the pedagogy. So, um, constructive alignment. Before we get into it, we'll just give you a quick uh, bit on it. So uh, it issued forth from the prolific pen of a self-described writer, academic and traveller, John Biggs, who you may have heard of in 10 bazillion other pieces of education stuff. He crops up everywhere. Big um, big man, big man, big name. Big Biggs. Uh, big Biggs. They call him Big Biggs. Biggie Big Biggs, we call him. In the, we call him uh, Biggsy Small <laughs> on these parts because he's so street with his incredibly useful learning stuff. Anyway, back in 2003, and um, he outlines an outcomes-based teaching design process. Uh, Basically, it's a way to design your teaching from the learning outcomes uh, backwards. Uh, So starting at the end and working your way through to the beginning. Uh, It draws on constructivism, which is uh, a little bit complicated and means a million different things to a million different people. Um, We're actually going to talk about constructivism in pedagogy in another episode. But if we did have to summarise it in one sentence, and here I turn to Mark... It's the idea that students learn by building a mental model, and you're right, the role of the teacher is to help the students construct their own mental model um, through a series of activities. That's basically what it is. That's much more succinct than what I had, which was the bit from Wikipedia. Okay. Which was, constructivism is a broad philosophy of education. The formalization of constructivism from within the human perspective is generally attributed to Jean Piaget. Piaget? Piaget. Piaget from Jean Piaget, 
um, who articulated mechanisms by which information from the environment and ideas from the individual interact and result in internalized structures developed by learners. He identified the processes of assimilation and accommodation that are key in the interaction as individuals construct new knowledge from their experiences. But as I said, that's what Wikipedia has to say on the matter, and um, I prefer Mark's one-sentence version. I'm sure you do as well. Constructive alignment, the actual okay. model. So um, it's a way of designing learning and teaching. It's learning outcomes-based. So once you've decided your learning outcomes, you work out how you're going to assess them. Once you've got the assessment decided, you design your learning and teaching activities to take a student to a point where they have everything they need in order to pass your assessment. So from the student perspective, they're told the learning outcomes at the beginning, so they know what to expect. They then study through the activities, linking them to the learning outcomes so they're able to frame them in the wider context of the curriculum. Finally, they do their assessment, and if everything's gone to plan, then they've covered everything they need, and because the assessment is based on the learning outcomes and the activities are based on the assessment, success. Basically, you start at the back and work your way forwards. Yeah, and I mean, one, one of the reasons why it was kind of, I don't know if it was novel, it was new to everybody in the 80s when I was, doing the, when I was learning how to do this, but part of the problem is that students just go in there and you go in day one, you go, right, learn this, this, and this, and then day two, it's learn this and this, or it might be a week later, in which case they've forgotten it all. But the idea of having a very specific learning outcome is that the students are always got this goal that they need to get to. So it's like, I mean, it's like gaming. It's like if, if you know that you've got to get to 100 XP in order to get to the next level, then you are more likely to do it. Whereas actually, if you don't know how many XP you need, mm. need to get to the next level, then you would just go, well, am I closer? Am I closer now? Am I closer yeah. now? You can always so see your probably, goal and see what you're doing yeah. and how it contributes to your goal. Yeah, and also the whole idea of it being economical, and we're going to talk about a model we, uh, you know, we use in our learning in our job called the iceberg model. So there's a trailer for another another episode, but that's a whole set of different things which help the which help with retention and, and those sorts of things. So this is the, the what the I stands for, and that's integrated. So what it means part so it achieves two things. One is that the content always relates to assessment, and the assessment always relates to a specific learning outcome. So then you've got that kind of integration and that alignment, which is where a constructive alignment comes from. But then also it's economical because you're not doing massive amounts of stuff that aren't going to be assessed. You're not assessing anything that's not connected to a learning outcome. Yeah. So everything therefore is as, as kind of as economical and as, as, as narrow as possible because one of the things that happens with learners is that you end up with a massive amount of stuff that end up not being relevant to the final goal. Mm. And it's relevant for learning and teaching because from a learner's perspective, obviously you can see what you're supposed to be doing, what your goal is, and what you need to do along the way. But from a teacher's perspective, from an actual teaching design, it's incredibly useful because it's essentially a fill in the blanks. Once you start with your learning outcomes, you can then work your way backwards from there, making sure that you're covering the bases. And if you've done that properly, then you've got a really good starting point for um, learning design. Well, and also the most important thing from a teaching perspective is it's less work. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, you see this lots of times is that you're actually designing all these things, you're putting them in, oh my God, this is irrelevant, this is less relevant, and all that sort of thing. And But actually, if it's not geared towards the fact that final learning, final learning outcome, then actually it's not needed within the course. That's the theory. Mm. Okay, so three key elements to constructive alignment, um, learning outcomes, assessment, and the learning teaching activities within there. Um, before we move on to the analogy, we're just going to quickly um, unpack a little bit what the, what we mean by these things and how they fit into the model. So first of all, the learning outcomes. Okay, so learning outcomes is, well, the way I was taught to do them is uh, by the end of the course, the student should be able to, and sometimes it even abbreviate that, abbreviate that to SPAT, 
Um, and that was a bit spat and then whatever the learning outcome is. So it's a very precise, specific uh, skill or piece of knowledge or, or uh, technique or whatever that the student will be able to demonstrate at the end of the course. And, and obviously, one of the things is that it's got to be something that is demonstrable. So it's either a piece of information or it's a skill that you actually have to practice, mm. something like that. Um, and it's usually as precisely defined as possible to make sure that everybody knows what it is exactly they've got to be able to do at the end. Hmm. Which takes you on to assessment because that is how you are, uh, assessment is how a student demonstrates that they have met the learning outcome. So if we take, for example, uh, an understanding of, demonstrate an understanding of, an assessment would need you to be able to show as a student that you have an understanding of X. Yeah, or it could be creative an episode of a podcast and it's like <laughs> the end of the learning, then you create a podcast and then everybody listens to it. And if it's any good and if it's in the right format and if you can hear it and all those sorts of things, and if it's coherent, then you've got a podcast. Obviously, you need to break it down into a bit more, like it needs to be so long and it needs to not waffle on and it needs to be well edited and all those sorts of things. Yeah, so you might be listening to the internal checklist and wondering when any of these points will get checked off if you've heard any of the other episodes, but, but yeah. bear with it. It's early days. And you need a good name and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, um, yeah. So, but that's, that's really – and then you know – as you're working towards it, that you're actually achieving these particular points. Hmm. And the bit where um, it all kind of joins together is your activity. So now you know um, what it is that a student needs to be able to do by the end. You know how you're going to measure that because it's ultimately measurable. So your activity is the bit that join the two together. It takes them from the state they start at to the bit where they can do what they can do. The activities can be anything that's normally contextual. I mean, that we've talked previously about literal just uh, knowledge transfer through talking at people, didactic method. There yeah, are, or, other methods are available. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be modelling. So basically, if it's like, well, do a podcast and you take somebody through um, doing an episode of a podcast and recording and showing them how it all plugs in and then they have to actually model that and then they, you leave them to do it on their own. And I mean, this is the way meerkats teach their little meerkats to make to catch scorpions is they'll put them in a pit and they'll give them a dead scorpion and they'll watch them and then the, the meerkats will then attack the dead scorpion and then you put a live scorpion in there but you actually watch it really carefully so you can see what the meerkats are doing uh the baby ones and then you know so you basically model that behavior but i think that one of the things there the learning outcome is self-evident in that you will survive being attacked by a scorpion and so some of these times the learning outcomes. this seems like a much better analogy <laughs> for constructive alignment than the one i had selected for the episode i wish we talked about this beforehand because i would have happily have used meerkats fighting scorpions it's not it's not geeky enough though is it it's really? so geeky it's so cool <laughs> although all i can see in my head are the little ones off the advert oh yeah yeah alistair and all that and whatever yeah. alex alexander rather yeah, yeah. and of course one of those actually is a teacher no yeah yeah but she used to be a kgb officer the, the, she's female i've got i've got this is the only one i know <laughs> how do you know how do you know about this and not about the harry potter books well because because she's wearing a cat suit nobody wears a cat suit in harry potter i mean if you know, <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose <laughs> school age it would be questionable. No, I can tell you if it's if it's all of interest to our listeners. You know, the thing that really draws me into these sorts of things is the law. Is the oh, whole I thought you're going to say the No, no, no. It's that, that the, in reality, no. It's the whole world building thing. So if I'm going to get into one of these particular um, imaginary worlds, I have to go in full in, all in, and so any one of these is a huge commitment. So. There are only so many hours in the day, and I can't do all of them. So, so yeah, there are huge gaps. I, it's like there's there's nothing that I know only superficially. It's either I know nearly all about it, or I know nothing about it. And there's very little in between. And so, within and within that, you thought Harry Potter. <laughs> 
passing fad. Compare the markets, however. Now, those adverts are here to stay. And no, are you be well, right, was, I suppose? That was, that was one of the more superficial ones. I mean, you know. <laughs> okay, so is there, before we move on to the analogy, is there anything else we should say about constructive alignment? Um, we could talk about all the things that are wrong with it. Ooh, let's. Yeah, so I think some of the issues with it are that it is more about the scaffolded, structured approach that Barack Rosenshine postulates or evinces or whatever suggests, which um, and obviously from now on I'm going to call Barack Baza, and the more experiential, looser, explorative thing that Yoda in, encapsulates. Because if you've got a very precise learning outcome at the end, and then everything is dedicated towards that learning outcome and everything is then going to be assessed and only assessed on the things that are being the learning outcome. That's not really, that's not what learning can be because learning is also about the offshoots, the digressions, the explorations, the the stuff that appeals to you as an individual, the opportunities to actually round yourself out as a, out as a person. It's about exploring your own identity, about having a chat to other learners. And none of those are permitted by that particular model. They're all squeezed out because everything is geared towards this one very precise assessment and then the learning outcome. And as we said earlier, you can only really uh, um, work, it only really works as a learning outcome if it's demonstrable. But then there's a whole set of things that you can't necessarily measure in that sort of way. And so therefore, you know, as another analogy, it's like it's the it's the drunk man looking for his keys underneath the underneath the streetlight because that's where the light is. It's not necessarily where the keys are. So if you're looking at creativity or just the ability to have fun or the ability to socialize or support your fellow learners, all of those things are important part of learning. But you could assess some of those, but you're not necessarily going to. And if you get distracted by something fascinating along the way, there should be opportunities to explore those things. And that very tightly aligned model doesn't permit those sorts of things. But then this does return to our usual, I mean, at least once per episode uh, point that these models are useful, but not to the point to the exclusion of all else. They're all there to be taken with a pinch of salt. I mean, they're all useful models to use, but obviously, yeah, if you were to stick to it, um, I was going to say, I don't know why I was going to say Nazi. <laughs> um, religiously. Religiously. Yeah, sorry, if you were going to take a, a religious approach to uh, to following this model to the exclusion of all others, in the same way as one as how we discussed uh, Brack Rosenstein's Ten Principles of Instruction, um, you would, not for a great piece of learning, mate, you're right, it's the bits of digression, it's the bits of interpretation, the bits of looseness in there. I do, however, think that as just a starting point for thinking about how you're going to build a bit of education, it's a really good one. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a way to, to structure it as a way to align all the separate bits. But the problem is, um, because it is effective like that, and because everyone's looking for shortcuts and trying to be as economical as possible, it is a good way to create an economy within a, a learning design. Um, it tends to not be balanced with the other things. So, there so is you, a, you get like an all bones, no meat scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I when I used to, I mean, when I started teaching, there would be people that would only teach towards the exam. So it was like, well, if it's not in the exam, I'm not going to teach it. And if I would always have one session in the week where the kids came along, there were kids, um, to say, well, they had half an hour to just talk about whatever they wanted. So go, well, what do you think about the Loch Ness Monster, sir? And we're going, well, okay, so this is what evidence is. This is what the scientific method is. Do we have the evidence for the Loch Ness Monster? Well, probably not, and so on. But that was a chance for them to just suggest their own thing. I was teaching physics, but it was more about the philosophy of science and those sorts of things could come out, which wasn't on the A-level syllabus, wasn't on the O-level syllabus. It was just something that the students wanted to know about. And 
it was important for them to know that. So, but within, but my colleagues wouldn't have done anything like that. I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I'm a great teacher. But, you know, I felt their their students did better <laughs> in the exams because they spent more time working towards the exams. And from the those te- their teacher's perspective, my friend's perspective, that was what was important was the exam was an important thing to do well at because that was what helped them in their career. And so the idea of learning for the learning's sake wasn't relevant to those children because what was necessary for them was for them to succeed at that particular exam in order to get on to the next step, which takes us to the other problem with it. I'll have a bit more to drink. And I'll have an interjection. Okay, go on then. Interject. (laughs) Um, It can be a very prescriptive Mm. model. But I think if you're designing creatively and with a mind to doing a good bit of teaching from the perspective of, you know, I want to keep my students engaged, I want to give my students, I'll let, allow my students to enjoy a subject, then the difference between the learning outcomes and the assessment, within the activities, there's a lot of ways you can do that. For example, there's Loch Ness Monster example, mm. um, application of scientific method to a um, mythical scenario is still an application of the scientific method. That's yeah. a that's a really valuable exercise to go through. And yeah, sure, it's a bit of fun, but it's still reinforcing schemas that you've gone through um, as part of your teaching and building towards your um, your outcomes. If that was on the syllabus, but of course the learning outcomes at, at O level and A level, obviously at HE level, the authors of the modules, the teachers are the ones who also set the learning outcomes, so it's slightly different. But in those situations, you are handed down a set of learning outcomes, mm. which then, then you have to teach to. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, those weren't on the curriculum. Those are just things that uh, they were interested in and I was interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, but still, I mean, if, if your learning outcome is going to involve the student being able to demonstrate be able to demonstrate that sort of bit, you know, be able to demonstrate knowledge of scientific method, for example, then that's, you know, that's a good activity within there just to get it kind of yeah. embedded. Yeah, and you could actually design it so it would have those sorts of activities. And of course, when you're designing an HE thing, then yes, you could also even, it's like the scripts they used to give Robin, Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy. It's like, you know, Robin goes off on one. And so basically they'd have a five or ten minute gap in the middle of the script where we just extemporize. And you can always do that as well. It's build in moments where students can go off and we have independent study and those sorts of things. So there are chances within that very rigid um, framework to have those extra things. But I think the point I I would make is that you don't want the learning outcome to drive everything and to the denial of all the opportunities to do other things. That's fair. Now we're on to the analogy. Back onto the analogy. Oh, there were other. Well, we were going to quickly. Else. We were going to quickly cover a couple of other bits on it. So, uh, we quickly talked about the learning outcomes, um, assessments. Is there anything to say on assessments in constructive alignment that we haven't already? Um, no, I think we might want to talk about assessment overall in another in another episode. But I think the key things are that. Everything that is within your learning outcomes needs to be assessed. You don't want to be assessing something that's not within the learning outcomes. Um, so you just have to make sure those two things are aligned, really. Yeah. So we'll be spinning off assessment as well as probably anything else we cover in this episode. This episode is going to be um, very much the uh, the trunk of an entire tree of um, weird spin-offs. It's going to be a real nightmare to navigate for, for anybody listening to it. So, uh, so good luck with that. Um, finally, uh, the, the third part of them also, um, learning outcomes assessment activities now activities are the stuff that we're covering in just about all of our other episodes i can't think of anything else to say on that it's your classroom activities it's your outside of classroom activities it's the stuff that students are being asked to do it's the stuff directed by um the teacher i think that's fair 
Um, well, yeah, to, I mean, directed by the teacher to some extent. You could have directed independent learning where you're telling the students to um, um, to go away and find stuff out. Um, so, but, um, yeah, so, but I think that's a key thing as well with activities, and we'll, we'll touch on this more in another one, which is that the idea to think about what is it the student needs to be able to do in order to meet this assessment later on. So it's not necessarily about, here's a book, learn this, regurgitate this fact, or go away and... Um, memorize this it's about it's seeing learning and teaching as a series of events that could involve teaching uh, could involve reading no reason why it shouldn't could involve watching a video again that's okay too but those are only activities that are one or two of a whole menu of different options and to think about the most appropriate menu I think the last thing I mean the last thing I'd like to say about the model before we move on to the analogy is the um sort of Probably not the right terminology for it, but the macro level and the big level. What's the difference of macro? Macro, and micro, micro, and miso. Micro and miso, like the soup. Uh, no, spelt slightly differently. But listeners can't see. Who <laughs> <laughs> can't see that? Miso, M E S O, miso. Yes. Okay. So, as opposed to the soup, which is M I S O. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, as in, um, it's some. It's something that you can use uh, at both curriculum level and at a, essentially a lesson level, a unit level. It's um, as a model applies broad strokes and individual components. Like I was thinking more like I want my cats not to wake me up at five o'clock, five o'clock in the morning because they want their breakfast. Mm. So the cat should be able to uh, go for 12 hours without eating. My assessment is that I have woken up at eight o'clock in the morning without having had a disrupted night's sleep because my Cats are just greedy, greedy little shits. <laughs> and then the activities that I'm going to go through with that are feeding them at appropriate time, ignoring them if they hassle me. And so there's a constructive alignment between what I need to achieve with my cats and the activities I'm going to undertake during the, the, the lead up towards the assessment point in order to make sure that they achieve the assessment that I want. Which so is, it works with anything, really. It does. And that's even better. That's a nice, smooth transition from cats to dogs because Remus Lupin's a werewolf. Spoiler alert, possibly, for, for Mark. Uh, no, because the name is a giveaway. Are you, are you implying that the incredibly well-concealed Lupin within his name <laughs> um, has somehow given the, given the game away that he might have something to do with, uh, with canines and wolves? It could be Lupine, could he not? He could be like a loop guru. So, on to the analogy. Yeah, okay. Part two, a nerdy analogy. How does Professor Lupin use constructive alignment to help Harry Potter fight off Dementors? So, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. It's a good book. It's mm -hmm. a really good book. Second best. It's got lots of good bits. It's got serious belch in it. It's got Professor Lupin, two of the best characters. Um, not as good as the Goblet of Fire, which has a lot of dragons in. But then we can't hold that against it. Dragons a, are cool. They are. That's, it's a hard bar to meet. Um, it's also really short as well. It's a, it's a nice, short Harry Potter book. It's not a big, thick tome. But anyway... I'm the one drifting miles off topic now. Um, <clears throat> so, Professor Lupin uh, sets the curriculum for the Defence Against Dark Arts in Year 3. I think it's either Newts or Owls that they're doing at this stage, but don't quote me on that. Please, if you know better about Harry Potter, uh, write in to an address, P.O. Box 127, um, at this So, the learning outcome is that one should be able to protect oneself against a range of dark, magical creatures. Uh, this includes Dementors, who we meet uh, during the opening of the book, and then again uh, on the train to, uh, to Hogwarts. 
Uh, Lupin chases one off on a particular occasion, uh, and it sets Harry an additional learning outcome, which is for him personally to be able to fight with Dementors because of his uh, sort of additional weakness to them. He really suffers. So, activities is not what you should be doing next, because what you should be looking at is assessment. Well, the assessment would be you survive the Dementors, isn't it? I mean, that's a very straightforward yes it is. no. Yeah, I just realised I was looking at this in chronological order, yeah. which, of course, is not the way that you do... No, you do in reverse chronological order. order. We do it in reverse chronological order. So that's the outcome that we're looking to be able to meet. And because there are other Harry Potter books after number three, you know that he has probably met them. Um, so... Although when book three came out, there weren't any other books after book three. That is true, actually. Mm. That is true. Although I read book three just as book four was coming out. Okay, so, so you knew he was going to survive. Well, I, I mean, it wasn't called Ron Weasley and the Goblet of Fire, right. which would have been a <laughs> hell of a gotcha. Well, Muad'Dib doesn't survive book three of the Dune books. Very true. Although <sighs> that's a huge spoiler. I th- it's been, that's been around for a while. I think that's a fair game. <laughs> assessment. The assessment is uh, that he is able to fight off a Dementor successfully, as well as the uh, the other range of uh, dark creatures that he encounters as part of the normal curriculum. So what activities does he take in order... Sorry, what activities is he set in order to do this? So there's a couple of things that are done. Um, Professor Lupin uses uh, modelling in a safe space, i.e. Bogarts, which are nasty little beasties that transform into the things that scare you the most. Uh, in Harry's case, it's Dementors. So he uses them as a semi-safe way to teach Harry... Um, how to deal with these. So it's not a real Dementor, but it's close enough and it gives Harry the, the old chills and it's a safe space for him to practice um, the spell that fights off Dementors. In this case, the Patronus. So this is like the Meerkats and the Dead Scorpion. It's all the zone of proximal development again and again and again. It's like, here's a little another step to take you from where you are to where you need to be for the next step and then the next step. So an ideal teacher will be able to then break down this massive gap between where you are and the learning outcome into a series of incremental steps. And the meerkats do it through those stages that we we with a dead scorpion and a live scorpion, but scaff, but are monitored, and then they get to do it on their own. And with the dementors, it's uh, the bogards. Yeah, it's, it's a bogards. It's a little nasty beastie that he uses to okay. pops it out of a cage. I think it turns into a spider for Ron Weasley. Um, oh, okay, because they can shapeshift as yeah, well. Yeah, so it's they? a nasty okay. shapeshifter into whatever makes you, right, makes you the you. most scared. Okay. Um, and within that t- uh, teaching as well, he does some uh, sort of personal sort of micro learning outcomes for Harry. For example, in order for him to strengthen his Patronus spell, uh, he has to train himself to uh, to think happy thoughts, think of his happy memories in order to do that. And that's um, something that develops throughout the course of the book. It's just lots of little objectives and little steps that build towards the greater kind of assessment point of him being able to fight off these Dementors, which he does successfully at the lake in the end, uh, protecting uh, Sirius Belch. Can I just also point out that every time um, Mike talks about Harry Potter, he mimes waving a wand around? (laughs) 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 There's some West fulfillment going on there. (laughs) (laughs) It's not intentional. Um, And uh, I believe the assessments at the end are both theoretical and practical. However, we then have an interesting curveball thrown in where Mr. Lupin goes off poorly and our second supply teacher of the series, Severus Snape, comes in and he starts teaching Defence Against Dark Arts, but he starts doing it from a theoretical perspective. So he hijacks the curriculum. Uh, Specifically, he hijacks the activities that are taking place. Um, And I believe Hermione throws up a a question as to how they're going to um, do their their end-of-year assessment on dark arts, having purely studied theoretically on the subject, because it's a practical examination. And this is a good example how if there is a disconnect between the activities and the assessments, when learning comes, 
conducting the activities, then suddenly the students are in for a loop and there's no clear path towards a successful outcome. I think that's part of the problem with a lot of, I mean, a lot of teachers have, which is that this is all self-evident to them, that the practice is actually encapsulated in the theory, but, but it's not because you need to actually see modelled that behaviour specifically in order to be able to do it effectively. So um, I've just finished NVivo training, and if I could have just read through the book and then gone, well, here's what I need to do, and this is this and that and that, I would have completely lost. But actually having um, a teacher who could actually say, well, you click on this and you move this, now you try it. Now you do this for your data and you've clicked on this and this and this. Now what problems have you had and you can go back. Then actually that's a way more effective way to learn because there's that iteration between theory and practice, theory and practice, gradually building up one on the other. Until then you've actually got both in, um, in sync when you actually need to be assessed. Exactly. And this is where Lupin's um, teaching, sort of even just his lesson pattern, uh, is more successful than uh, Mr. Snape's. Because he takes uh, an objective exercise and test model uh, approach as opposed to uh, Snape's didactic, read the textbook, end of lesson. Read the textbook, absorb the knowledge, end of lesson. Yeah, because you can't, I mean, this is with most things, you can't absorb the knowledge until you try it out in a particular in a particular occasion. And of course, you know, something which is about defending yourself, then that is such an ultimate, I mean, there are reasons why you do things in a particular way, but ultimately it is a practical model. It is a practical example, practical thing you have to be able to do. And so therefore, modelling it practically is also really important. It's, it's going back to that cognitive apprenticeship model, which is what Snape's obviously failing to do there, because he's not, he's not being the kind of modelling that behaviour, enacting it in front of them and then getting them to copy it and then, um, and then, uh, and then get them to do it independently. It's, it's just, this is in my head, this is how it appears in my head. If I tell you about it, it will be like that in your head. Which now I think about it is really weird because his own class, his potions class, he's actually quite practical in. Well, uh, is this partly because he's not as confident a teacher in something that's not his particular subject? Well, he's wanted to be the Defence Against Dark Arts teacher for forever and a day. It's something that he's always, everybody, basically every time in the first, basically every time in the first all of the books um, that something dodgy happens to a Defence Against Dark Arts teacher, which is every book, um, Snape's the first subject because uh, popular rumour has it that he wants the job. And has always wanted the job and, and resents those who, who have. So, yeah, and I mean, maybe that's why he hasn't got the job is because he's obviously the Dumbledore. Dumbledore. <laughs> Dumbledore. My goodness. Sorry. And obviously he hasn't got the job because obviously Dumbledore realises that he's not up to it. Maybe that's the problem. Could be. Yeah. Oh, could could also be worse for him now. the curse. The curse of the dark arts teacher. Oh, which is? Voldemort put a curse on um, the... Voldemort somehow cursed the job title, essentially. Oh, okay. So the post of uh, Defence Against Dark Arts teacher has a, has a powerful curse on it by, by Voldemort. Why they didn't just change the title to annul the curse is, is beyond me. I should think curse is a bit of... They know more about it. <laughs> Who cursed the job of learning designer? Somebody did that. At <laughs> okay, so um, quick recap then. How did um, Professor Lupin show Harry Potter how to fight off Dementors using constructive alignment model. Well, it's nice and simple. Uh, he set Harry uh, a clear overall uh, learning outcome with a clear, at the time, assessment model, which would have been uh, to be able to do it in a safe environment. Ultimately, he does it in a not safe environment, but the assessment model was to be able to fight off a Dementor in a safe environment. 
Oh, okay. So the original learning outcome wasn't, are you going to get attacked by real dementors? Either you die or well, you don't die. I think that was the concern, but I believe okay. the original plan for it was that he was going to fight off a, a Bogart dementor as part of his defense against dark arts. So I think the official curriculum, but I think there was always a sort of an underlying concern that a dementor might try and gobble him up. Okay, because that is kind of a harsh... Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> strategy isn't it? Is like end of, this, end of module assessment. We're going to put you in a pit with a dementor. <laughs> so you've got nine months. Go think happy thoughts. Well, not all, all the meerkats survive, do they? During their process, once again, meerkats would have made a much better example of. Well, this. yeah. Also, they model the behaviour right at the start. Something else I didn't mention is that actually, first of all, the, the adult meerkats kill the scorpions while the baby gear meerkats watch on. So they're modelling that behaviour. So actually, there's all those steps. Well, modelling behaviour. Uh, Loop first encounter with Lupin is him um, chasing off a Dementor with uh, with his own Patronus. Oh well, good for him. So, and he does that again in um, the inaugural Defence Against Dark Arts class. In fact, he demonstrates how to uh, deal with the Bogarts in yeah in that very first class, and deals with uh, Harry's Dementor Bogart when he's unable to uh, to deal with it himself. So this is quite a practice-based environment, and this is one of the things that we're kind of starting to deal with now with the apprenticeship models, is that is that on the whole, most education up to now has been working with learn all this sort of stuff, now go out in the real world and do it. And one of the things we're working with the apprenticeship model is that actually there's a bit of theory, but you're doing the practice in parallel with this because you have a job, and you're taking this academic stuff and this theoretical stuff and applying it and then bringing it back as a kind of experiential mode. And that seems like what unintentionally they're doing at Hogwarts, which is that they're supposed to be teaching the kids this stuff, but actually there's all this crap going on outside the school and coming into the school, and so they're having to actually learn this sort of thing in a kind of real-world environment, because well, magical fantasy real-world environment, because um, because there's all this crap going down, unfortunately. So that's kind of like an interesting way to bring in experiential learning into the classroom, but bring the academic outside the world immediately and bring the two together. I mean, maybe all teaching should be this way. You heard it here first. Also, we're sitting out experiential learning um, into into another episode. Because oh, yeah, I keep, we, we've referred to it at least six times in the last four episodes, and it's probably time to um, tell you what it means. It's all interconnected. Everything's interconnected. Also, uh, you've got another good example of a communities of practice model. Uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are a fantastic example of communities of practice. Uh, and in fact, just the whole of Gryffindor House, they, uh, yeah, they're great. They uh, support each other. They teach each other. Um, there's, I looked through the model the other day, this isn't even going in, but boundary <laughs> objects, broker agents. I was, um, I was oh, doing cool. the research for this and I was like, oh yeah, shit, there's actually a really good example of community of practice. Yeah, everything's community of practice. Yeah. Everything's community of practice. Cool, so I think okay. we've answered the question. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, that's good. Cool. So, takeaways. Important things to know that you can use in your own teaching about constructive alignment. Be clear about very precise, focused, specific learning outcomes. Make sure your assessments match those, learn, are assessing the things that the learning outcomes are meant to demonstrate and that they don't assess anything else. And then also you need activities that will lead towards those assessments, lead towards those learning outcomes, but also in order to not be too prescriptive, in order to still bring in some of the, um, the wider experience of learning, build in opportunities for things to be off topic so that those can actually still be incorporated into that learning process. Otherwise, it's too one-sided and it's too scaffolded, too locked down, too behaviourist, and you need some of that more wider, student-centred, um, one-off kind of activities to occur, like, you know, um, looping, creating that separate stuff for Harry Potter on the fly. Indeed. And as with all pedagogy, uh, theories, models, and all of that, 
Uh, it's a model. It's not the law. So nobody's going to hold a gun to your head, um, probably, unless... <laughs> unless that's part of the assessment strategy. Yeah, unless that's part of the assessment. <laughs> unless your job is coming up with um, things within this model, in which case, just do whatever they say. Well, thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on... as Actually, well, yeah, yeah now you... We've got a website now, so you after, will now. <laughs> after five episodes, we have a name. After five episodes, we have a name. We've Pedagodzilla. <laughs> we should. We already said it once. We should have said it seven times because it, it took that long to come up with a name. And other names that we nearly had will, will be in the show notes, probably. <laughs> so you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, really. We should hopefully have propagated by then. Uh, you can also visit us at www.pedagodzilla.com. That's Pedagodzilla, spelt like how it sounds really <laughs> but I guess with two L's if you can't spell Godzilla correctly um, <laughs> you can also contact us via um, probably Twitter unlikely to be Facebook yet maybe maybe Facebook eventually probably Twitter oh because of Endgame spoilers you've still not seen it I, I, I haven't been to a, I don't know of any cinemas where I can't sit I can sit for more than half an hour I mean, on the basis that every other living human has now seen Endgame, any showing of it will just be you in there, surely. Oh, okay. Well, that's good too. Yeah, we'll try that <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.